What is it about the appeal of a strong man to fix everything in a democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. There's so much palpable relief across America and the world that within a couple of months, we will at last be free of even thinking about Donald Trump. He'll be gone. Oh, he can talk about running again in 2024 and continue his childish insistence that the 2020 election was rigged, but we can rest easy knowing, without a doubt, come January 20th, he will be gone. The White House will be restored to where the legitimately and democratically elected and sane new leader of the United States will live and work. The four-year nightmare will at last and soon be over. Now, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but history isn't always pretty. There's a lot of ugly stuff that we need to learn, which is, of course, why the Trumpists would like to ban real history and replace it with soothing myth. Our guest today is historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who has written extensively about how authoritarians in modern history actually achieve their goals. She says Trump's coup is not over. His enablers aren't done. We're in a dangerous state of exception and it's too early to say whether democracy will hold. Thank you for being with us, Ruth. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ruth ben new book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the President, put out by Norton, is the first study to place President Donald Trump in the context of a century of authoritarian leaders that use a playbook of corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power. Ben Giat's work has been supported by Fulbright, Guggenheim, and other fellowships. Her books, Fascist Modernities and Italian Fascism's Empire Cinema, detail what happens to societies when authoritarian governments take hold and explore the appeal of strongmen to collaborators and followers. Growing up in the Pacific Palisades, California, where many intellectuals who fled Nazism resettled sparked her interest in the subject. Uh, and with Strongman from Mussolini to the present, she offers a blueprint for understanding and resisting the new 21st century authoritarianism. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And I've lived through a lot of presidential elections. Every now and then, the guy I voted for won, though not usually. There have been many close elections, many surprise outcomes, none as surprising as 2016, one in which the nine members of the Supreme Court decided who won, but in each and every case, the results, though often unpleasant, were accepted. The winner took office, the loser graciously conceded. <laughs> the Trump presidency has been so unique, his bizarre insistence that it was rigged against him fits his and other authoritarian leaders' patterns. Your new book, Strongmen, looks at the precedents of many, including Mussolini and Vladimir Putin. Well, no doubt Trump has not read a word uh, about mm -hmm. any of this, uh, and he, he doesn't know about others who transformed democracies into authoritarian regimes. In what ways do his actions line up with others who have actually done that, transformed democracy into authoritarian regimes? 
So um, the reason we never had an election like this is that we never had a president like this. And we we really can't use a democratic framework with a small d to look at Trump's administration and evaluate his presidency because his goals have never been those of any other president. His goals are close to those of autocratic leaders. So what his priorities have been, number one, to make money uh, for Trump organization. So to turn the presidency into a profit and promoting machine for his properties. And that's why he spent one out of every three days at a Trump branded property. Another goal is to uh, build his personality cult so people will stay loyal to him. And he's done that. And the third is to uh, disseminate hatred to keep people polarized, because that's what uh, allows this kind of leaders to thrive. And and so um, he's used this playbook of propaganda with his barrage of misinformation, of corruption, like I said before, uh, turning you know the presidency into a for-profit enterprise, uh, incitements to violence, and then this machismo with uh, you know tweeting pictures of his head photoshopped onto Sylvester Stallone's body, all these crazy things. So he fits he fits the playbook and. Um, he, this is why looking at him, it's been Americans, some of them have been very slow to come to this because we haven't known anything but democracy. But that's not the proper frame of reference to mm. interpret Trump. Interesting. Just as a matter of fact, today I was uh, driving and I saw a pickup truck with a big flag behind it with one of those pictures of Donald Trump on uh, Sylvester Stallone's body with all these bright <laughs> colors behind it. It it was amazing to me. I mean, of all days, today they're doing, and it's just a month after the election. They they, that's a curious thing. They they his the the person I have an op-ed coming out with the L.A. Times tomorrow on personality cults because Uh, we really can't we can't understand his success, including what's going on now, where he got you know over seventy million votes in the middle of a pandemic and economic collapse without the idea of the personality cult. And it, you know, he worked very hard to uh, keep people loyal to him and make them believe in him. Because once people believe in you, they don't, they not only uh, believe your lies, but they also sometimes don't care if you tell them lies Mm. because you've posed as a maverick, as a rule breaker, and it's kind of sending, you know, a middle finger to the establishment. So he did all that very successfully. Um, I have a large collection of these um, fantasy Trump macho. Uh, images mm. and uh, oh, and you. that one I wasn't allowed to use it in the book because of copyright issues. But um, uh, it's it's an important it's very important because it's not even a retweet. It's actually from Trump's personal um, uh, directly from his account. So this is his ideal of who he is, which is a fighter, and he's carrying that with him now um, and. As he, you know, seeks to present himself as someone who's been wronged, he's the victim. And so the things going on now, this kind of last stand with all the hiring and firing and getting more and more loyal people, this the, the anchor of this is Trump's victimhood. And that he has been, you know, cheated out of something that's rightfully his. Mm. So you see how that plays into the like macho, uh, the macho thing. Yeah, it's it's I deserve it, right? I can think about uh, macho young, largely white men who uh, formed this thing. Uh, I think it's called incel, 
involuntary mm-hmm. celibacy. How bizarre is that? But they're the victims, <laughs> they're, and they're angry about being victims. It's very bizarre, but it's real. Uh, and in term, in the term strongman, it reminds me of a word I learned when studying Latin American governments in college a very long time ago. The word was caudillo. And, mm-hmm. and how did you come up with a theme and title for your book? And can you give us some examples of strongmen or caudillos who are in power now? This is obviously Putin. But while there are, of course, differences between them, what are the traits common to them all? And as I, before you do that, I, I was in Italy a number of years ago, and there were uh, flags celebrating Mussolini looking the same mm-hmm. kind of strongman thing. And this is, what, 50, 60 years after the fact. So what are, the, what are the difference? There are lots of differences, but what are the traits common to all these caudillos? Yeah, and one of the reasons I wrote the book um, is because I felt it was time to go back and look at 100 years of this evolution of this kind of rule. So I'm using the term strongman to refer to a subset of authoritarian leaders. And in the past, in the 20th century, you know, you had, it's divided into three eras. You have the fascist era, and you have then the age of military coups. So I have Pinochet in Chile and Gaddafi. Mm. And then you get up to new authoritarians who generally come to power through elections, and then they manipulate elections to stay there. So Mm. Bolsonaro, uh, Erdogan, Putin, and each one is very well situated in in his time and place there. Each one's going to be a bit different. But the strongman is somebody who, um, you know, destroys or damages democracy. So, for example, you have a path traced by Berlusconi, who uh, mm-hmm. normalized the extreme right. He was the first to bring neo-fascism to power. He didn't destroy democracy, but he damaged it. He he kind of wrapped it around his finger. He had all these personalized laws passed because he had so many corruption trials. And Trump is in this vein. And then you have people like Putin who and Orban who've really, uh, you know, uh, all but destroyed democracy. And and so the formula is different today. But the strongman uh, name is also the term is also uh, reserved for leaders who consciously use machismo um, in their self-presentation uh, to their people and also in their uh, relationships with other male leaders. So I I wanted to take this virility masculinity seriously because the political science literature, which was very helpful to me as a historian, it doesn't really uh, deal with masculinity. It doesn't have a place for that. And I had I, I've been analyzing propaganda forever. So it really is a tool of rule. So I elevated uh, alongside propaganda and corruption and violence. So for example, the uh, he's a man, he's an everyman, but he's also a superman, mm-hmm. the ideal. So that he's the man who gets away with things other men don't. So there it ties into corruption. Um, and so the personality cults present them as these kind of figures who often rule by divine benediction, mm-hmm. like even Trump with the evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So when you when you look at this, Trump fits in. Uh, he actually takes every box <laughs> of of this style of rule that can play out differently in different countries, but the aspirations are the same. Mm. Uh, fascinating. The new book is called uh, Strong Man, From Mussolini to the Present. Our guest is the author, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. And uh, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. That uh, I mean, this whole thing about macho 
and I, I, it, I have gotten the impression that so many of the far-right young men are very uh, insecure about their own masculinity. But one thing that I find even more curious is women. I mean, why? what's the... It's obviously they're not... Uh, it got me tongue-tied that, that they're not feminists, that's for sure. But what, what is the mm-hmm. uh, appeal to, to women about uh, people like Trump, strong men? So you put your finger on the two dimensions of this and everything about these guys is a bit of a contradiction. Like think about what I just said before. Trump is the last person on earth who you think would be embraced as somebody with divine benediction. He's so, you know, profane. He's so, he's not pious at all. The same thing happened with Mussolini. So they're full of uh, contradictions. The gender politics is very interesting because on the one hand, over and over again, my research found that, these these figures find uh, they have an appeal when there have been a lot of change in society that has made people anxious and angry, including uh, racial equity, social progress, workers' rights, and gender emancipation. So they come they come in when people are feeling uh, worried about male authority and male privilege, and this corresponds very well to you know the kind of showdown between Clinton and uh, Trump in 2016. But the women question is interesting. So, and I, this is one of the things that surprised me when I did the research. So I knew all about the alpha male machismo part. But what I, what I hadn't realized is that these, a lot of these men, uh, they're also huge whiners, right? They're mm-hmm. always a victim. Mm-hmm. And Trump is just uh, he's just one example. Berlusconi in Italy was always talking about witch hunts against him. And he was, and he was very, they're very transparent in their emotions. And so they actually make themselves vulnerable in a funny way. Well, Trump always talks mm. about, I love you. You know, I love uh, the North Korean leader. Mm. Um, I want you to love me. And so they appear to people to be very uh, authentic and that's why they have these direct communications channels. So Berlusconi used to get up and he was the master of TV in his in early mm-hmm. 2000s. And he used to say uh, that he, he used to talk about having plastic surgery and hair transplants so that he could look good for Italians. And so housewives were one of his biggest bases, white, white housewives. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that we see over and over again, that women actually start to feel protective they feel very cared for. Um, they also feel superior. There's racial dynamics. If you're a white woman, uh-huh. you feel superior to a black man in Trump's world. Wow. Right? Okay. So, but the key is that it's a pattern. Like in Putin, women were very, uh, always very part of Putin's constituency. So they know how to market themselves to women, even though they're misogynists. And this is just one of the contradictions. Wow. That's so bizarre. But I'm reminded by a quote from my favorite philosopher, Groucho Marx, who said, uh, mm. sincerity, if you can fake that, you've got it made. I guess that's well, yeah. And in, in fact, many of them um, come from a past of either uh, journalism, not just Mussolini, but Mobutu, who's in my book, in the Congo, or look at Trump and Berlusconi, who were masters of TV and marketing. So, and Modi in India, uh, has a huge, he uses Instagram um, very, very effectively. So the more they are expert at this, like, mediated politics, the more they're seen as authentic. <laughs> 
And this is very much the case with Trump, who's extremely careful about everything he does in terms of self-presentation, but comes off as natural mm. uh, and people fall for it. Wow. Right. Boy, it, it, that I mean, coming at it, coming at the presidency from being a TV, you know, uh, reality show star and using that to, to gain the power. Boy, it's something I never would have thought of. And I've been in politics for a long time, but... In this TV age, obviously it worked, and there's a lot to that that has been sort of behind the scenes, but does build the power. And in, in what ways is politics always personal for the strong man? It, it's personal because, in, in fact, one of the criteria for selection, because like you know, it's a global book, and I had to draw some criteria is that all of them are what political scientists call personalist rulers. And this, these are rulers who exert uh, a lot of, um, they, ra they wrap things around themselves and their own private, maybe financial needs, think of Trump, yeah. uh, or their private relationships with other rulers, like with Putin, Berlusconi and Putin were very good friends, Berlusconi and Gaddafi were friends. And this comes to exercise an outsized influence on domestic and national policy. So think about the GOP that Trump has managed to wrap them around his finger and they will they will support whatever he does to the point where their 2020 program was just like we are supporting Trump, like right. automatons. Mm -hmm. This is an example of how the personal becomes not only becomes political, but it becomes the national and and. As in terms of their own personalities, these men don't see any um, separation between them and the nations, meaning right. everything is theirs to plunder. Everything is theirs to own. So Trump has zero problem with golfing uh, one out of every three days to make money for his golf courses because the, the public good is, is not of interest to him as public. It's only he wants to control and exploit everything for his own gain. Pretty amazing. And, and that's one thing that a lot of people, including myself, have been mystified. What is it with these Republicans? I mean, I was in the New Hampshire State Senate for a long time. I knew conservatives. This guy's not a conservative at all. What is the power? <laughs> and, and I blame them, these Republicans who have just kissed up to this guy. What is yeah. the power that does he have something on them? You know, some embarrassing video or something? I mean, what what is it? I mean, you're right to blame them because one of the lessons of the book is that every time, you know, these these guys can't do anything without their enablers. Right. So there's their grassroots followers and then yes. there's their elite enablers. Yes. And it's very sad that over and over again, um, especially if they come from outside politics, they depend on these uh, establishment politicians to bring them into the system. And one of the saddest dynamics is that sometimes these politicians think that they are going to like control the outsider. Like they, uh, and often they're, you know, they think of them as clowns, like Trump's a clown or he's incompetent. And then we're going to be able to use it as our tool. And the joke is that they end up being the tool of him. Um, and, over and over again, this has happened in history where they misread the person. And and yet, and then once they make their bargains with them, 
because like the evangelicals are getting, they've gotten a lot from Trump. Yes. I, I, you know, I see why they're so into him and all the other constituencies, big pharma, big agriculture. Trump's been, he's been rewarding his cronies. So once they do their, their deals, they stick, this is the lesson of history that's incredible. They stick with the leader to the bitter end, like no matter mm. what he says or does, even mismanaging a pandemic, uh, entering into a terrible world war against the advice of your generals like Mussolini did. Um, they do the worst possible things and people are too intimidated to push back against them. I would think for their own interest in Politicians, I think it's fair to say, are generally interested in their own ambitions more than anything. And I would think this might possibly hurt them going forward to 2022 and 2024. But I don't know. I'm not a Republican. I don't know. It's fascinating to me. And looking at history is always so important. As someone recently said, think with history. And we don't do that nearly often enough. Now, the Trumpists as we know, often accuse the other side of being snowflakes, whiners. Trump, as we've mentioned already, has always plays the victim. He's always being treated unfairly. And you would think perhaps this act would not go over well with the macho types who support him. They don't want to be victims. In what ways has Trump's victimhood endeared him even further to those macho type supporters? Isn't But isn't talking about the dangers of Trumpist authoritarianism, kind of old news to them. He's leaving office January 20th, so who cares? Isn't the threat of authoritarianism in America kind of over? There's two questions there. Um, for the, the victimhood, yeah. it actually confirms what many people already thought, and this is where Trump didn't create this, he just weaponized it. All of the conspiracy theories, the deep state stuff, all the nefarious forces that the right-wing media universe already had planted out there, Trump just came in and he kind of gave a focus to them mm. and focused them around himself. So it becomes like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy um, that he isn't, someone has to be the victim and it's Trump, right? Uh, so, so for that part... Um, and I can see people who felt left left out, you know, people in, in middle America, the flyover states, mm -hmm. uh, they have been ignored by the elites of Tuco. So I suppose that could uh, have its appeal too. hey, he's he's one of us. He knows what it's like to be ignored and not taken seriously by these educated types. But what yeah, and and he was very savvy with this, where he 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 played the populist, and he said, "I am your voice. I am going." This is Steve Bannon's writing, and Stephen Miller's writing. Mm. I'm going to care for you mm. in a way that nobody did before, and and many of them do this. So this nothing that Trump does uh -huh. is new. That's what's incredible. Um, it it the outcome is very different because now we don't have like fascist dictatorships. It's not going to look the way it did before, uh -huh. but the things he does are, um, and as you said at the beginning, he's not consciously reading a playbook. He's doing this out of instinct, but nothing he's doing is really very original. Oh, that is unfortunate. But to my second part of the question, he is leaving office January 20th. Isn't this like old news? Who? I mean, isn't the threat of authoritarianism already over? No, uh, and I see it as getting, uh, I'm very, very worried. Um, and, and you're talking to somebody who, uh, before Trump was inaugurated, 
I published an op-ed, um, several pieces in The Atlantic and CNN, but I published a, an op-ed. It's called Trump is Following the Authoritarian Playbook. Uh, before the four or five days before the inauguration that predicted what he would do. Mm. So, so let's just, that's the premise. And, but the fact that um, the GOP will not recognize Biden's victory and are most of them or almost all of them are backing Trump's uh, illegal attempt to stay in power. And we're now a month out from the election Mm. is extremely concerning to me. Um, and they're trying more and more desperate things because they haven't done well in their uh, quest. You know, the courts have turned them back, right? Like, I think we're, he's up to 38 failures now. But, you know, he also tried the military option, and then General Milley uh, yeah. made that declaration to Thank shut goodness. that down. But that's terrifying that he, the fact that Milley had said that meant that he felt he needed to say that because Trump was trying. And now he's he's done all these. I call them end stage follies. Um, he he is firing all these people and having more and more loyal lackeys there. And that's he's doing that. If he were just going to go quietly, he wouldn't be doing that. Why would you do all this stuff at the last minute? It's because the stakes are very high. He's trying to steal the election, and he he's not going to give up. Uh, and and you see that the rhetoric's become more violent. Uh, they're now you know. Um, like uh, secretaries of state in the in, in Georgia and elsewhere, they're being like threatened outside their homes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and this this makes sense because they're getting more desperate because Trump needs to stay in power to avoid prosecution. Yes. Of course. And so, as his one after the other of his strategies is failing, he may um, resort more and more to incitements of violence. Oh, lovely. Yeah, sorry, but <laughs> I, I mean, he he may, he may not. And I always feel that um, it's best to be aware of what the outcomes could be and prepared. Yes, yes. Now, we, the same thing was said, and I didn't say this myself, but uh, many people thought there'd be widespread violence around the election. I did, yes. And then there wasn't. Right. Um, but there's, but right now the rhetoric is being stepped up. Uh, and Michael Flynn, who was pardoned, uh, the reason he was oh, pardoned yeah. is so he could he could now be a uh, insurgent, and so he's calling for martial law. So there's very scary things going on, um, and let's just hope that it's like the election and they they don't come to uh, they don't materialize. Mm. Yeah, that thing calling for a coup is is just amazing. I mean, so obviously they're a quid pro quo, where he got pardoned and then he could do that calling for. But luckily, thank goodness for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, who who made a pointed declaration saying that armed forces are going to obey the Constitution and not an individual. Thank God for him. And I don't use that phrase all that often. But what yeah. about what about the possibility of the Trumpists sending a signal out? Stand down. Mm-hmm. to the far-right militias all yeah. over the country to physically attack the White House at that point. Uh, is that scenario just absurd, I hope? Or could he just fire yeah. up the militias? Go ahead. Yeah, we can't We can't rule anything out. And this is, uh, I had to turn the book in in, the, in July 2020. And the last thing I, so I had to write it as though there were either outcome in a sense. But the last thing I say about Trump is that you cannot underestimate his will to stay in power because he must stay in power. Yes. Um, he must. And and so he, 
he, yes, he's been, he's been, remember he said to the proud boys and the militias, right. stand, stand by, stand yes. down, but yes. stand by. Uh-huh. So that was a signal. The, that's a signal. And, and then the pardons are interesting. Um, I, I started a video series called the transition to, to keep track of these weird things going on. And pardons, I have some lines in my book about pardons that the, the authoritarians love to pardon people at important times in their governance because it frees up the worst elements of society to uh, work for them again. So, so Mussolini, okay. uh, when he declared dictatorship, he, he did a um, pardon of all political criminals, meaning all the thugs who helped him get to power. And then they were there. So Michael Flynn was pardoned to do exactly what he's doing. Um, and uh, so that wasn't good news either. Uh, they all use pardons um, mm. to, to, to free up the unscrupulous people who they need. Interesting. So. I was just feeling so good about, uh, and I did a show a few weeks ago about the Golden Dawn <laughs> uh, criminal being declared criminals in Greece. They're right-wing, racist, yeah. uh, white supremacist. They have been declared criminal. But it hadn't occurred to me that somebody in the future, some strong man, could pardon them and bring him... Uh, bring them onto his, and I'm sure it would be a man, onto, into his government. And I'm reminded a little bit, It, uh, you know, we've all seen the movie uh, The Godfather, and, and the way the mafia works, you know, is is there's the, the Don, and people do what he says, and if you don't, boy, you're in trouble. And it's always for the Don himself. You still there? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, there's a there's a very good reason that um, many, uh, depending on the state of organized crime in their countries, many of these men ally with organized crime. Uh, Berlusconi, uh, his his right hand man, uh, Marcello Delutri, was found guilty of mafia association while Berlusconi was in power. Putin's kleptocracy is. Yep. It, there's that and Trump's associations because he was in construction and otherwise with organized crime go back decades. So the methods are similar. Uh, yes, they really are. But we're, you know, we're still a two party country. Democrats are, as always, split between the, the more corporate Clinton, Obama types and the traditional liberals. But the Republican Party, what's what's their role in all this? It looks like most elected Republicans are sticking by what I think is a lame duck. What's happened with that party? Will the traditional conservatives be able to take back their party, do you think? Or is it just too far gone? Not anytime soon, because, um, and this, this, as somebody, I think one of the strengths I have in writing this book is that I don't, I'm not a historian of America. Uh, I started out, you know, in fascist Italy. I also work on empires, so global history. And so I kind of turned my gaze onto America and the Republicans with this outside view, right? And um, so the the GOP had already drifted into being an authoritarian-minded party before Trump came along. They were so enmeshed in the far-right media universe, and they had kind of given up the idea of bipartisan governance and mutual tolerance for your opponent, you know. So that's why when Trump came up, he tested the situation to see uh, how lawless he could be. That's why he was saying, uh, like, what political candidate in their right mind gets up 
before he has the nomination and says, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. He, that was like a, a testing. And he pushed, he saw that the GOP could, uh, was actually, some of them were willing and happy to have a candidate like Trump. So they were already um, out of the realm, like with one and a half feet out of democracy, I think, when he came in. Wow. So it's going to be hard to, um, and that's why you've had this um, this fissure in the party with the never Trumpers that are exit that exited. So they've they've become a far right party, and some comparative politics studies have come out recently that show that they are actually when you put them on a um, a scale with world parties, they they rank like Golden Dawn and Erdogan's party. They're not traditional conservatives anymore. They're yeah. a far right party. So that's one of the hard truths we have, because even when Trump leaves, these people are remaining. And how do we govern with them? That is a very good question. How do we govern with them? And wow, it's it's just sort of mind blowing that they could actually be where they are. And it's, I remember when Barry Goldwater was considered far right, he'd be a liberal by today's standards. And and uh, General Eisenhower, when he was president, aside from his foreign policy, he was possibly to the left of Bernie Sanders in many ways. But the fact that they've gone so far to the right, and that's, you know, we have elections basically starting now for 2022, and of course the presidential election, and Democrats... <clears throat> Let's face it, we, you know, there was that whole idea that uh, uh, as wonderful as it sounded, when they go low, we go high. Bad move, bad move. It's like, and, and Democrats just fight amongst themselves and still consider, you know, the, the old way it used to be as the way it's going to be. We need to figure this stuff out. I hope a lot of Democrats read your book, which is called Strong Men, From Mussolini to the President. Our guest is its author, Ruth Ben Giat. Now, Mitch McConnell, evil, evil man, has quite clearly abandoned any attempt at even the appearance of fairness. He goes back on his word. He just, you know, he doesn't, I don't know, it's like he doesn't care that he doesn't, that uh, what people think of him. How significant is this all-out, all-out drive for power? And what are some of the worrisome examples of them embracing undemocratic methods to acquire and retain power. I think the best thing that's been written, one of the best things is by Jane Mayer in the New Yorker uh, profile of Mitch McConnell, where she just, she said, I sought, I sought uh, mightily to discover anything he was attached to, any ideology, any principle beyond power, but I couldn't find one. So it's just power. So this is somebody who's tailor made to conform to somebody like Trump. And indeed be, I think that some some Republicans have felt liberated to have somebody like Trump there. I think this applies to William Barr because they can be lawless. They can be as kleptocratic and oligarchic as they need to be um, because there's no ethics concerns anymore. So so that's that's the sad state of affairs. Um, and I wonder... And, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was no, go ahead. just going to ask about... You know, members of Congress coming up now. The elections are starting, of course. They they never really end. But the election of 2022 is coming up. And I wonder if this scenario that's worked so well, actually, for Donald Trump, if 
these Republican candidates now uh, will sort of embrace part of this, you know, power is the only thing that matters, never mind issues, never mind the good of the country, but actual power. And I wonder if going forward they can, you know, embrace this lawlessness and, and what the effect of this will be on, on the members of Congress, of which there are quite a few, and they have some significant power. Yeah, I think if if uh, Donald Trump, uh, as I expect him to, says he's going to run again in yeah. 2024, that he needs to do that to keep the GOP in line because he's spent so much time and resources mm. cultivating them and making them his tool. So if he stays on as the de facto head of the party, then mm. they all are going to have to conform to him. And I do wow. think he blackmails people. This is He's always done this. Um, so for whatever reasons, it's going to be hard. And, and he can't have any rivals emerge. And here we go back to the machismo. No other man can be the top dog. So part of him running for office, whatever really happens, he's pro- he has every reason to say he's going to run. And then everybody will have to fall into line, um, <clears throat> including for 2022. Look what happens if you if you don't uh, if you rebel against him, resist him. Right. Look what happened to Jeff Sessions, right? Who who is a total you know villain in terms of this zealotry on immigration, and he's the one who first brought. Um, he was an early Trump supporter, very, very early. So he bears a lot of the blame for um, normalizing Trump. But then, you know, he got like a twinge of con- conscience in the eleventh <laughs> hour, and and he stood up for rule of law, as he says. And then Trump turned on him, and the whole machine around Trump discredited him, and he Destroyed lost him, to that yeah. football coach. Yeah. So now he doesn't. So now he ended up worse than he was before. He has no Senate seat. Right. And uh, that was done as to set an example, because mm. authoritarians love to set examples. <laughs> the horse head in the bed, kind of thing. Yeah, well, in other <laughs> eras, like with Mobutu or the other, you know, uh, uh-huh. old-fashioned, uh, or even Putin, sometimes Putin, you fall out of a window, you know, you, uh-huh. you often get killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in Erdogan's Turkey, you don't get killed, Ugh. but you get go into prison yeah, for a long time. So. Here you get you lose your seat. Maybe you have to, you know, you lose a couple of board of directors seats. But it's been very sad to see the spectacle of conformism because the the, the costs are lower than in traditional authoritarian states. Um, they're not getting killed or put into prison. So as I talked about <clears throat> college from a long time ago, I had a professor who defined politics as the economy of violence. The economy mm-hmm. of violence. You don't have to have the actual violence there, but, you know, Putin, they fall out the window, they get poisoned, or oh, they have some accident. But there's other ways to do it that are a little bit more subtle. Can there be ways other than a military coup in which Trump might use what you call law warfare to stay in power? Tell us what that means, law warfare. This is, you know, when you, it's what he's always done and what he's trying to do with the election and what he's always done with his private businesses. You try and find, you use the law, you find loopholes, you find, and this could be tax law, uh, regulations, any kind of campaign finance laws. And you, you lose, you lose, uh, use those loopholes to uh, manipulate the law. Uh, and and you exist in this gray area mm. between the legal and the illegal. Mm-hmm. And Trump has always lived there. That's his whole business 
like plan since for decades. So he was already suited to do this. He brought this he brought this method into governance with him. And the other expert on this was Berlusconi. He did the same. Um, so that's part of what I call lawfare. And today it's used by, um, like, Orban in Hungary mm-hmm. has been able to target enemies without much physical violence because he, you fabricate, you find a kind of a business of somebody. So let's say you have a rival or someone who opposes you and they run a business. You send the tax police after them. Mm-hmm. Or you said you have you use legal harassment and you financially exhaust them and they end up going bankrupt or they have to sell an ally of yours, their media company, and you get rid of them in that way. So that's what that's the formula. Uh, and it does seem to work. Otherwise, they wouldn't be using it. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Ruth ben who's got a new book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the President, with, with a worldwide uh, context for looking at strong men, uh, uh, caudillos, leaders who are, are powerful men who rule at, at dictatorially. And talking about Democrats and making mistakes, President-elect Joe Biden has has made a strategic decision to stay above all this Trumpist nonsense. They appear to believe that, of course, democracy will win out in the end. Is there any danger for the incoming administration and the Democratic Party as well in staying above the fray? There, there can be. I think at the beginning, um, it it's it was it was a good thing for Biden to take the the high road and be calm and be comforting because we're also dealing with a pandemic and people are grieving their losses and scared. And we have a double crisis here. We have a health crisis and we have an economic triple economic crisis and we have a political crisis. Mm -hmm. So we needed, we knew that people desperately needed reassurance. Exactly. And he's, he's able to do that. So that's for right now, that's, fine. If things get worse because of what we said before with uh, more open calls to violence or if Trump won't leave uh, or he, whatever could happen, um, he won't be able to be uh, above it all um, as effectively because Mm. some way more vigorous um, response will be required. Mm. I hope they're prepared for that. I really do. And, of course, while doing everything they can to undermine democracy and steal the election, (laughs) they've put Joseph Goebbels' words to use, accuse the other side of what is true about yourself. For example, Mm -hmm. the uh, the Trumpists insist they are for freedom. They are the patriots in all this. But I think part of the problem is two distinct meanings of the word freedom. Your thought... Uh, your thoughts on on this point? What what freedom means to them, and what freedom means to us? I think it's it's probably bigger than people realize. Yeah, for the for the far right, um, this goes back to Mussolini because Mussolini talked about liberal democracy being bankrupt in like a, a hundred years ago, and that freedom was going to be found in fascism, um, and that liberal democracy was tyrannical because it reduced you to. Uh, consumerism, 
it didn't respect hierarchies. It wasn't spiritual. He, and so this has been kept on in, in different forms as a talking point. So Orban goes around talking about how illiberal democracy, that's his term, is uh, the true freedom. And liberal democracy is tyrannical. He sounds exactly like Mussolini. So this talking point uh, has, that's part of the background. But in America, there's a very particular meaning, um, which is connected to, you know, individual freedoms and guns, like gun ownership. Mm -hmm. This is part of it. So it's a bit, it's, it's partly different in America. Uh, tied to our particular notion of individualism, our particular attachment to individualism. And, uh, but, but some of the, uh, there are people around Trump like Bannon and Miller Mm -hmm. who have studied this like longer, um, only the right can bring you freedom and it makes its way into Trump's speeches. And people don't think about other people. I mean, the whole, politicizing of the mask wearing it's is somebody said uh, it's like during the blitz of london if if somebody said i am free to keep my lights on if i want to yeah it's a good example uh, it's it's amazing to me but that that's what freedom means to them and the media you know it, it's fascinating to me how trumpists accuse the media of of being you know part of the left and it's been impressive that the mainstream media has suited, so studiously avoided calling the president a liar when he does virtually every time he opens his mouth. They're finally starting to use the word liar. Has the media actually been cowed by Trump? Uh, And in what ways might this be dangerous to democracy moving ahead? So the media is an interesting angle because here we go back to the point that Americans weren't prepared for somebody like Donald Trump because all we knew was democracy. Even though our our um, country had done a huge amount of damage in other countries, right? With the with I have the Pinochet coup in U.S. backed coup in Chile and Guatemala, all of those yes. juntas. But here we were not familiar with other types of uh, of leaders at the national level, right? So the media didn't know how to handle Trump and was giving him the benefit of the doubt as though he were a regular with a small d democratic. He was playing in a democratic, he was playing a democratic game. So I know writing for CNN, uh, it took a while for me to be able to use the word liar. Mm. So you could, you, you could use falsehood, you could say other things. But I think it's been a double-edged thing because investigative journalism is hugely revitalized under Trump. Um, and uh, not just the New York Times and Washington Post, but CNN established a whole investigative journal- journalist unit um, or brought in new talent. So I think that and the media have been one of the main demonized groups by Trump. So it's really changed things. Um, so we have that versus what's going on at the high corporate level with mergers and consolidations and that's affecting media just as much as the political environment. Yeah, interesting. There's there's at least two parts to the uh, the Trumpists. There's the uh, people on the street who you know love the uh, the strong man, but there's also like so many other strong men, the the oligarchs, the people who use that and 
that you know that the, the uh, people on the streets don't really realize that they're being used, but the oligarchs have been very successful using the power of the masses for their ends in 2016, and especially in 2020, as we've seen with uh, uh, other autocracies. I wonder if this aspect of authoritarian Trumpism will continue with vigor as we move ahead. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's where, yeah, I think that's those stories need to be told more. Uh, it's certainly there. It, it's what fuels his climate change denial. Um, you know, all the alliances with big lumber, big pharma, big, big business. And in fact, his populist rhetoric, his anti-global rhetoric is ridiculous it's because he's allied firmly always with the moneyed interests who can keep him in power. And that didn't start with Trump and it's not no. going to end with Trump. The Cokes and all these, the Mercers, they didn't, they, they hitched their wagon partly or were fellow travelers for a while. But um, these are larger questions. But when people like Trump come to power, all of these issues get blown open and the dynamics are made very clear. So they're always, it's always a moment of education um, as well as like many, many bad things happening, right? It, it does seem like, in so many cases, they, they, the, the dictators are faux populists. They pretend to be populist. There's so many. I mean, Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Orban, those people, they, they really support the oligarchs, the, the real big powers, but very effectively use the little guy, the people who feel left out. And it's been, uh, I don't know what Democrats can use to, uh, to get through that and hopefully realize that they didn't connect with people who left out and need, or who feel left out and need to do something about that in the future, and and you refer to something, uh, the election of 2016 as Axis 2.0. Now, some people might forget what the first Axis was. I wonder if you could explain what you mean, and how this reflects on the weakness of democracy going forward. Axis 2.0. What is that? So I use that term. So the original Axis was uh, Mussolini and Hitler. And later with uh, Japan, uh, the illiberal world order that was supposed to replace and conquer uh, liberal democracy, right, in the 30s and 40s. So when I saw um, all these um, illiberal leaders in our own day, uh, kind of headed by Putin, who funds a lot of far-right parties and movements around Europe, um, I, I thought there was a new configuration emerging so I called it Axis 2.0. And Trump's place in this is that he was elected to move America out of the realm of democracy. And that's why he's uh, retreated from all the climate accords, the World Health Organization, all of these networks and organizations that, um, that upheld uh, human rights and, um, you know, kind of liberal democratic principles he's trying to withdraw from all of them and who does he want to have alliances with it's erdogan it's putin um it's modi so it's saudi arabia so this is what i meant by axis 2.0 and it's a radical shift for america and that's why uh, pompeo as, as head of department of state has had to work overtime to replace so many um, civil servants, so many diplomats, because it's really like a sea change is what they're trying, they've been trying to pull off. 
Oh, yeah, real, real transformation. And if Trump goes, that doesn't mean Trump is a man's, not by a long shot. And uh, you, you say that the minute Biden won and Trump and the GOP didn't recognize the results, this opened a window for a kind of state of exception. What do you mean by that? Well, a state of exception, traditionally, it's like uh, uh, it's like after the Reichstag fire in Germany, where Hitler used this um, emergency. Um, the debate is out on whether he the, the Nazis caused the fire or not, but he took advantage of it to um, suspend uh, democratic rights. So a state of exception, I'm using it broadly as a time when um, strange and bizarre things happen mm. that um, you're in a kind of liminal zone. You're not in a business every day. Every, you're not in the everyday business zone. You're in a special zone. And that's where we are because we've never had anything like this. Um, and it's been going on for a long time now, more than a month. So that's what I mean. And Democrats try, for some reason, they they try to avoid looking partisan. They, the impeachment process was again and again dismissed as being a strictly partisan exercise, and they got away with it. People think it was just partisan. The, the Republicans were amazingly successful at portraying it this way. So now Democrats are super careful to avoid looking partisan. You say Democrats thinking they may look partisan is futile at this point. To illustrate that point, you cite the example of the Aventine secession when Mussolini took power in Rome. I wonder how trying to look noble might play itself out as it did in uh, 1920s Italy. Yeah, it doesn't work when you see this is you do those things and and we can we can um, perhaps forgive the people in 1924 who did the noble thing and what they were doing is they they that Mussolini had stacked uh, Italian parliament. This is when Italy, Italy was still a democracy. And Mussolini is very relevant because he, he was a prime minister for three years in a democracy. And during that time, he chipped away at it. He did all kinds of, including a fraudulent election maneuver before he became dictator. So things got very bad in 1924 and the, um, different, uh, liberal dem democratic parties, people who represented democracy, decided to dissent and they left parliament and they met on, in, on a separate location, mm -hmm. which was the Aventine Hill in Rome. And then guess what? They never got back in because the fascists were only too happy to see them go. <laughs> they kind of did their work for them. And when they tried to come back, these thugs, you know, that's what fascists were. They were, they were armed thugs. They barred them from coming back in. And so it was a kind of, uh, noble gesture that led to them being purged. Well, let's hope they get smart, and violence is certainly a, a big part of it. They're armed thugs these days, Lord knows, and they love they love Trump. I did want to ask about uh, almost everything is part of a historical pattern. What about male in-laws with Trump and other recent dictators? There is uh, uh, that uh, in-law, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. What about uh, that as relates to other recent dictators? Yeah, there's a, um, so because they're corrupt and because they require loyalty and they can't hear any criticism, they all have the same personality. They surround themselves with uh, what I call cocoons or inner sanctums, 
of you know flatterers, sycophants, incompetent people who don't pose a threat, and family. Uh-huh. So all of them have family members. Uh, most most all of them who have family members who are competent in being their lackeys and keeping their secrets. So I have a paragraph at the role of son-in-laws. Um, who uh, from Mussolini's son-in-law, who he named foreign minister and then ended up having executed uh, later on, to uh, Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey, their son-in-laws have very large jobs. And Pinochet in Chile, his son-in-law was uh, in charge of um, privatizations. So imagine the corruption opportunities there. (laughs) Up to Jared Kushner. So again, nothing that Trump is doing is really wow. new. Um, and when you put it all, when I put it all in the book like that, and so the chapters are organized around um, each tool is a separate chapter, and it goes over 100 years. So you can see how propaganda changed, what changed would stay the same over 100 years. But Trump is the end of every chapter. So you see, you get this historical view on what's going on today. And this is why I wrote it also as American to figure out what the heck was going on in our country under Trump and trying to give it a context and a perspective. So good to uh, read history and to know what's going on. Well, assuming Trump does leave the White House on January 20th, the powers that be want us to believe we are powerless to do anything. What would you suggest to make sure that we prevent a return to authoritarianism? It's very important that we act We act in these years because they're going to get try and get back in power. And I think it's important to try and build bridges. And although there's a core of Trump supporters who can't really be reached, they're just gone. But I think there are yeah. a lot of voters who maybe didn't love Trump, but they were told by Fox News, et cetera, that Biden was going to bring socialist apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I believe that once Biden gets in and they see that socialist apocalypse is not actually coming, I think that some of them will be reachable. And I don't think we can really give up on that because otherwise we're dooming, yes, the stakes are too high. Fascinating stuff. Ruth Ben-Giat, thank you for being with us and her new book on uh, Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, put out by W.W. Norton and Company. Thanks so much for that important uh, perspective. Thanks Thank for Thank you. Man, my service star, they put you there. You're all of us now. You're all over town. I'm rappers and cans. You're bigger than life. You're braver than death. You're a gunman. Holding your own. You're a gunman. Never alone. Gunman, leader of packs, shadow of death, killer in cheek, never betrayed, friend of our kids. You're a gunman, holding alone. You're a gunman, never alone.